the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. I have with me today Dr. Geoff Norman, who is a professor emeritus in health research methods, evidence and impact at the Faculty of Health Sciences at McMaster University. It's a great pleasure to have you here as one of the probably founders of our field. So I'm looking forward to this conversation, Geoff. Welcome. Thank you, good to be here. Thank you. So as I was saying before, um, the whole purpose of this podcast is to get to know the people behind the research they do. And I always start with a very simple question that take us all the way back to people's lives, which is who was Jeff growing up? What was family life at the time you were growing up? What were you curious about? What did you do in your spare time? Things like that. Okay. Uh, Jeff was a fairly, well, okay. I was born in Winnipeg in 1944. I was an only child. Um, for a variety of reasons, I ended up getting ahead of myself in school. And that turned out to have a profound influence on a lot of what turned into Jeff Norman. Um, I actually reached university at age 15, which sounds terrific, except socially it was an absolute disaster. Um, as a kid, I was really hooked into science. I wanted to be a chemist in chemistry, and I was doing things like blowing things up in the backyard and getting a kick out of things going bang. <laughs> uh, and I was always interested in science, certainly. I always saw myself as a scientist and pursued that career fairly well until I hit a, a brick wall. And that is, I, I went into undergraduate physics at, at Manitoba. It, I discovered it was really, really intellectually tough. It was really hard, really, really hard. Um, and so I stumbled along. I, I did manage to get an honors degree, and then I went on and did a PhD in physics by the skin of my teeth, I think. <laughs> Fortunately, I guess, you know, through that, what turned my crank was always making things, actually. So it sounds like that's a bit of an, an, an oxymoron or something, but it was the experimental part of physics that really turned my crank. And, that, and they gave us a lot of freedom. So I was learning how to run machine shop tools and welding and electronics and computer programming, all this stuff that I really enjoyed making things. And in particular, I really loved building model airplanes, not the little plastic ones, but the ones that fly. That went on hold for about 40 years, but I came back to it about five years ago. And so now I'm actually the president of our local radio control model club. Back in my youth, and the first plane I built was a Spitfire that my wife gave me for my 40th birthday, which left it was in a box for about 30 years until I finally got around to it. But I'm having a great kick as, a, as an old age pensioner building airplanes. And that was really my first love, but I never wanted to go into aviation. I never wanted to be a fighter pilot or any of that stuff. The other thing, though, was the science part of it left me with very little in the way of useful skills, a bit of algebra and a bit of calculus. But left me, I, more and more I realized, with a particular state of mind, a particular worldview around. Seeing how, seeing how things work. But I always make a contrast between 
the discovery, the scientist discovers things, the engineer invents things. Okay. And I, and you're an engineer, so I think you're smiling because you know where I'm coming from. <clears throat> I'm frankly not at all interested in inventions. Okay. In education, you can't avoid inventions. You have to have the test, you know, the, the survey with your name on it and the, the test that's, you know, the so-and-so's test of blah, 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 blah. And, and you're supposed to claim that you really are there to help students learn and, and make medicine a better place and ultimately save patients' lives. If you say so, I'm not interested. Truth be known, and I suppose this should be between you and me, but it isn't, so so be it. I'm interested in how things work. And so when I finished my PhD and the world finally realized that I was a really fairly crappy physicist and I had to switch fields quickly in order to pay mortgages, that state of mind around how do things work still carried me through. And so uh, we'll... That's enough about my undergraduate and all that experience. Oh, the only other important thing about it was that far and away, the best course I took as an undergraduate was college fraternity. Yes, you heard me right. Because at age 15 in university is not a good space to be in when you're trying to be sociable and the juices are flowing and all that sort of stuff. <clears throat> so in third year university, I joined a college fraternity. And basically, the rules were if you didn't learn how to be sociable, you didn't get into the fraternity. You've got to be able to get dates. You've got to be able to do all that stuff with the other frat brothers. <clears throat> and that turned out to be a very useful experience because eventually, because through that, I learned that I wasn't going to make it as a Sears catalog kind of guy. I certainly wasn't going to make it as a jock because I had trouble walking and chewing gum at the same time. And the girls didn't seem to be too dazzled by the fact that I can do quantum mechanics. So I had to come up with a shtick. And I deliberately and honestly taught myself to be funny. And like most stand-up comics, I had lots of raw material to work with. There's lots of stuff about me that was comical as hell. And so I started there, but then built on it. And so to this day, I have no illusions. There's two things that people would associate with me. In fact, I'm looking at them up on the wall. My wife did one of those word diagrams for, I think it was my 70th birthday. And what it says is, center is teacher. And that's true. I've taught a lot of people, but right, the second biggest words are loves to laugh, sense of humor, great sense of humor. And we are a social species. Both of those things are really important in terms of my career. So, yes, I'm still driven passionately about, about how people learn. That's the mechanics thing. That's, what, that's opening up the black box. <clears throat> but I realize that to be effective, I also have to be a good communicator. And one part of good communicating is a sense of humor, which is something that is, in me, pretty well-tuned. I, you know, I love it when I can walk into a room and people start to chuckle as, I, as they see me coming through the door because they know they're going to be entertained. And that's a very powerful social device. So there you have it. There's, that's enough about me. Good. That's, the background. that's how I got to where I am. <clears throat> how do you bring that sense of humor to your work? Like... People who work with you know that you bring that, or how do they get, get acquainted with that? Uh, it's almost, when I go to a meeting now, uh, first of all, you have to distinguish between humor and joke telling. Stand-up comics tell jokes. Really good stand-up comics make it sound like it's spontaneous humor. The best humor, though, always looks like it's spontaneous, and in fact, much of it is. 
you have to be able to rise to the occasion and feed off the occasion. You don't just tell a joke. That falls flat. But uh, secret. I actually, every meeting I'm in, I have a sort of a running tab of how many times people laughed when I said something. And it's always greater than two. It's, it, you know, sometimes it might be serious and it's not much more than that. But I'm, I'm always responding to the occasion and coming up with, I mean, humor is all about coming up with bizarre solutions to the world. It's, it's coming up with things that just take you go, what? Oh, yeah. And, and that's, and, and I'm, I'm always exercising. I'm always practicing and I have no illusions. To, to me, that was a really important part of what I ultimately became. Without that, I wouldn't have been nearly as noticeable, although I guess being six foot five makes you a bit noticeable too. But that's another story. So speaking about so, bizarre things, what would be a problem in your career, either HPE or physics or whatever you had, that you never thought you would be interested in exploring, but surprise you and even make you laugh that you were surprised at that. Oh God. Well, let's just talk about how I got into medical education. Basically, when I finished my PhD, I ended up with a file that thick of rejections. It was quite embarrassing. Nobody wanted me and that. I think with good reason. Uh, I couldn't get a job. Until one day I was talking to a guy, who, a, a, a prof who was on my committee, who was the head of the computer center. And in those days, computers were physicists' playthings. Every computer scientist started off life as a physicist. And so I was crying on his shoulder saying, Jesus, Jerry, I can't have a job. He said, I know a job for you. And there was a guy in family medicine who was running a, what we now call an EHR, an electronic health record. We're talking 1970. Wow. It was all on punch cards. You being an engineer, you know what a punch card looks like. Oh, yeah. Damn few people do now. So it was all done on punch cards. We had two full-time programmers, two full-time key punch girls. And uh, we were running this computerized record system uh, based on a family practice unit in Hamilton. Okay. And that was fine, except the, the guy who was running it decided he'd rather be a psychiatrist. And so he jumped ship after a year, and I was out of a job again. Oh. And so there was an internist named Vic Newfeld. I don't know if the name means anything to you, but he was kind of the first generation of medical education people. Okay. I mean, the, I know the whole, whole early history. This isn't, this isn't the time and place to talk about medical education and where it came from. The answer quickly is Buffalo, by the way. But anyway, Vic Newfeld was the first head of medical education. And I think I was bursting into tears and crying at my desk one day. And he said, oh, well, maybe we can give you a job. And for reasons which remained frankly obscure, he decided I was just the person they needed to do the research they needed to know on clinical problem solving. Because huh. they had this brand new medical school that was all based on problem-based learning, which was based on problem-solving skills. And then they realized they had the foggiest idea what that was. So they decided in their questionable wisdom to employ an unemployable nuclear physicist to find out about the psychology of problem solving. Wow. I have no idea what they were thinking. But... Here I am. It worked out beautifully. We did all the early studies. There's still studies I refer back to. I did that as an engineer would do. I set up a, a, a fancy suite with a one-way glass and a FE, field of, FET microphone, field effect transistor microphone, and a reel-to-reel tape recorder and cameras everywhere. And we did we recorded everything. We did two things were unusual. One is we we set up this kind of incredible suite. Second is we were really doing qualitative research because we transcribed everything that the guy said and did, 
And then we went through the tape and transcribed all of that and then scratched our heads to try and figure out what was going on. We didn't have sophisticated tools because none of us knew from squat about how to do research. But that's how I got started. And uh, I still lean back on it. That, that still became the bedrock. Now, what happened was in order to step ahead on my career, because I was a research associate, so I had, you know, that's a dead end street. As anybody who's ever been a research associate knows, it's basically it's got to step off to something else because it's a dead end if you stay there. So I was trying to do other stuff to sort of establish an independent academic credibility. And I got into assessment because one of the things you learn in physics is algebra and calculus and all that stuff. And so statistics came easily to me yeah. and, and measurement and all that stuff came easily to me. Oh, I said that wouldn't happen, but it just did. Um, came easily to me. And so I got an alternative career looking at assessment methods. And I did some fairly interesting research around assessment methods. And that's really how I got tenure. But it ultimately became really, really, really boring. This may never have happened, but I remember that it happened that one night I was lying in bed saying, oh Christ, I gotta write up a grant proposal for the next evaluation study. And it'll be a reliability and validity study. And the reliability will be between 0.7 and 0.8, because it's always between 0.7 and 0.8. And it'll correlate with other things about 0.3 because things always correlate with other things about 0.3. So that begs the question, why am I bothering to do the study? Because I know what the results will be when, I, when they turn up. And I realized that all of that stuff, although it was easy for me to build my reputation on it, was ultimately just intellectually stultifying. No offense, psychometricians, but it really, it's, it's great fun to play with the algebra and the fancy computer programs, but they get the research design part of it and the curiosity part of it. It really wasn't curiosity at all. It was, it was just sort of collecting the kind of stuff that puts up, you put on the label of the drug bottles and say, you know, this one's okay. You know, we've gone through the FDA approval, we've done the clinical trial, the same sort of stuff. We've done the reliability and validity study and here's the reliability coefficient, here's the validity coefficient. See, it's good. But there was none of the, this curiosity that became so, that was always in the bedrock of, where I was interested. Yeah. And so I got to the point where at that point, I really, really hated the whole thing. I was really fed up with it. And then I wanted to get on faculty and the two things came together because one day I talked to Newfeld and I said, look, you keep saying I can't get on faculty. How am I gonna get there? He said, well, what happened actually? He, he told me I wasn't gonna get on faculty. So then I started looking for other jobs and I ended up with a job in Miami, a job in Montreal and a job in Cleveland. And then I talked to Dick about it. And he said, well, where does McMaster fit in? I said, I didn't think it did. So he said, well, here's the deal. You go off to Michigan State and get yourself a master's degree in psychology. So educational psychology. So you have some degree of credibility. Because let's face it, you've been winging it. You don't know squat about it, psychology or learning or thinking or memory or any of that stuff. Time you learn something, but that's what you want to do with your life. And when you come back, we'll get you on faculty somehow. So I went off to Michigan State, and that was where the penny dropped. Does the name Lee Shulman mean anything to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lee Shulman was my mentor at Michigan State. Yeah. He was my thesis supervisor. And if you've ever seen him talk, that guy is simply amazing. Incredible sense of humor, uh, but an incredibly profound understanding about the nature of learning and teaching. Oh. And so just listening to him and taking a course called Theories of Learning, Education 9-11, from Professor Shulman made me feel rather than ashamed and, and, and 
modest about what I was doing, made me feel good about what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Because he opened up the business to you really can be a scientist in this game. He wrote a paper called Disciplines of Inquiry and Education. And Trudy talks about education isn't a discipline, it's a sandbox where people with all sorts of disciplines can play using the tools that they bring to the sandbox. And, and when you just looked at his work, you realize that this is a guy who really brings an academic rigor to the, to the whole subject matter. And so at that point, I, I shifted back, this is around 1985 or so, I drifted back into more about experimental stuff on learning, all about clinical reason, because that's one thing is that I kind of anchored a, dis and, you know, a reputation to. But tremendously fulfilling because every research question was different. All of the research questions were focused on how do things work? How does memory work? How does learning work? How does stuff get into memory? How does stuff get out of memory? What about this idea of transfer? All of those things are really mental constructs which is what I turned my crank. And, and it turns out that designing studies to examine those kind of constructs is tremendously fulfilling because it's rarely the case that every study looks like every other study, unlike assessment where they really do look like cookie cutters. Whereas in this game, you know, we've had all sorts of really, really cool studies. And you know, the, the research team gets bored about the fact that, hey, I was awake from four to five yesterday and I came up with this great idea. But it really is the fact that most of my really good ideas, and there have been one or two in there, um, happen in the dark between sometime between 3 and 5 a.m. And I never get up to write it down. I just rehearse it once I've got it, and that'll be the next one. Titles of papers, uh, research designs, et cetera, et cetera. I, I was doing it again this, yeah, this morning, actually, thinking about some new ideas at, in the dark. Oh, okay. And that's... That's the kind of stuff that's always turned my crank. I'm still doing it. I look in the mirror you know, every morning and say, isn't it time you got out of this game? You're a cranky old bugger. You're an old-age pensioner. You know, go and play golf, which I do. Like. But, but, you know, aren't I a little old to be playing this game? Of course, then I look at Neil Byrne and I realize, hell, I'm just a youngster by comparison. <laughs> but, but the reason I'm playing this game is certainly not because of the glory. Yeah, sure, I enjoy being up on the stage. Like any good stand-up comic, I enjoy the smell of the grease paint, the roar of the crowd. The roar of the grease paint, the smell of the crowd. But the primary kick is really from give me an Excel spreadsheet, as I was looking at yesterday, with a bunch of numbers on it. And let me try and make sense of it and try and figure out what my nature is telling me. And that, to me, is as, as much fun as I can have doing anything, even building all the airplanes. So that's, that's why I'm still doing it, long after my best buy date, to be honest. Do you see yourself as a risk taker? You seem to move through very different and diverse fields and topics and embrace it. Am I am I reading it right? Do you embrace it? Do you just do it by necessity? No, you're or quite. Do you get out of that? You're, you're you're quite right in the. Uh, I've had a lot of time to play the game, but but also, I mean, calling myself a Renaissance man sounds incredibly arrogant. But the fact is that. I have played in a bunch of domains yeah. uh, and I've seen the links to them and, and each feeds on the other. I, I often say, you know, where do many of these ideas come from? Well, they, the ideas come from the fact that I've messed around in so many domains that I just have so many metaphors I can bring to bear on the situation. One, of, one thing that's a well-disguised secret is that my top 10 publications in my field actually 
six of the 10 are not in medical education at all. They're in quality of life research, which I got into for about a five-year period and did some, I think, pretty cool stuff. But because there's so many people doing that relative to the number of people doing medical education, the citations came rolling in and rolling in. So the top 10, I think six of them, are, are in, in quality of life research. Which is very, very different. It's, a lot of it is a that's applied statistics. I'm, I'm, I'm not a statistician. I don't want to be a statistician. I don't read statistics journals. I find it, first of all, incredibly demanding, but also incredibly boring. I never go to statistics meetings. I never go to seminars and at home on statistics. But I use a lot of statistics as a tool, mm-hmm. and to use it as a tool effectively, you have to again go beyond what test do I use, sir to what's really going on here. You know, the talent and what statisticians do that people who take courses in statistics don't do is really say, what are the variance reports? What's happening? How do these things interact? And then at the last, I will devise the test I need to take that, to move that one forward. So a colleague and dear friend of mine, a guy named Larry Jacoby said, statistics students think about statistics statisticians think in terms of statistics. They see the world in terms of statistics. And I think I'm kind of at that level because I don't really, I I know that I can always come up with, whether it's an F test or a T test or whatever the hell, that's that's no big deal. What I really want to do is understand where the data come And there are some people who are great mentors in that regard, people like Dave Swanson, Don Marcini, they are also really, really good saying, let's really examine the data carefully. And what we're doing is really saying, Ma Nature has got a story to tell, but yes, it was a guy named Fred Mosteler who has this lovely quote. He says, while it's true, the data speak for themselves. Their voices are really quiet and you have to listen really carefully to hear it. And that's summarizes it so beautifully. That, yeah, the data are there, they're trying to tell you something. But it's not going to slap you in the face. You've got to be very, very vigilant. And there's many, many studies where I ended up analyzing it completely differently from the way I started. Or that my, my theory at the end is 180 degrees from where my theory was at the beginning. Um, that's my current thinking is this one thing which I'm having a hell of a time putting, putting together. But it's basically represents a very, very strong departure from where I began. I'm sure you, you know things like Popper and the idea of Testing the negative. Okay. You know, that's the basic idea, proving that it doesn't work. And so far too much, again, far too much what, what uh, Kuhn would call normal science is affirming the theory that you began with. Uh, you know, you, you basically go out to prove that what you already know. And most, and most theories are frankly kind of boring. But the excitement derives from finding out, for looking for counter, or finding, discovering counterintuitive findings that lead you down a totally different avenue. Right. You, you know what I'm talking about. I can see the smile on your face. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Affirming, the, affirming the obvious is self-evidently true. And, but it was Popper, I think, who said, good science amounts to disconfirming the obvious and affirming the, the I'm not saying it the way he said it, but basically the idea is you affirm something that people don't suspect. You disprove something which people expect. That's where the good science is. It's on the off-diagonal cells. If you 
Right. And that's that, that's where the fun comes. You have a lot of fun thinking about different things. These yeah. days that you have, you said you have a lot of time. What are the topics that get your attention? It doesn't have to be in HP. What is it that makes Jeff Norman wake up at 3 a.m. with an idea? A lot of it is still medical education, I guess. Jeez, okay. um, uh, those are, that's heavy. I mean, in fact, what I do is, is, is really not at medical education at all. It's, it's really applied cognitive psychology. Okay. And, and as I mentioned earlier, I, I am really indifferent as to whether, whether I will ever be able to demonstrate that this makes a difference in terms of quality of care or any of that stuff. I, you know, I'm in an epidemiology department. I know how to measure all that stuff too, but it just doesn't interest me. I'm really not here to make the world a better place. I'm here to understand the world. I'm a scientist. I'm not an engineer. Engineers build bridges. Scientists show them how to create the module of this, that, or the other thing so the bridge won't fall down. But scientists discover things. Engineers make things. And I very much view myself. One of the great definitions of physics is that if it has any practical application at all, it's not physics. <laughs> that's, that's always been the way I view the world. But I don't care about practical application, even though I find myself in a practical field. I think if people, I mean, I, nobody's ever done this, but I think if people try to characterize me, as well as a sense of humor, they talk about how basically I'm always pushing theories. I'm always doing theory-based research and trying to, again, elaborate what we understand and what we know. Mm -hmm. Simply because it gives me tremendous satisfaction to be able to say, oh, look at what I found. I, I mean, you know Rose Hadlow, of course. Yeah. Rose was my master's student. And I can't remember what her thesis was about, but I remember so vividly that, tonight, oh no, I can't use a bad word. Uh, I, I don't use a bad word. Uh, it was at eight o'clock in the morning, which is an uncharacteristic time for me to be doing anything. But we were staring at my computer in my office and things weren't working. Nothing was paying off. Nothing worked. Just everything was null hypothesis. The P values were never significant. And then Rose said something about, well, I noticed when I was quoting the data that such and such and so-and-so. And then I picked up on that and said, well, if that's the case, then what we should find if we looked at this versus that is, is a relationship. And so and I go, SBSS, tick, 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 bang, up it comes, P less than 0.05. And Rose and I jumped up and hugged each other and danced, and we were shouting out loud at 8 o'clock in the morning, it worked, it worked, it effing worked. <laughs> That's, I mean, that's, that's the way I see it. I mean, the number of times, oh, another time, yeah. This is far, this is about two years ago, three years ago. Well, it's pre-COVID, but just that's all. Um, the issue about how to learn anatomy. And of course, the big deal was virtual, is virtual reality. Right? That's Bill Gates and everybody else is pushing virtual reality. Bruce Wayman and I, and I came up with well, I think it was his idea, but it was my studies. Um, is that really the case? Is, should, is it really the case that virtual reality is, 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 is better than the alternatives? And we started off by doing some, and just uh, give me a second because yeah. I want to make a long story short. Yeah. In the end, we ended up comparing a physical reality, 
a plastic pelvis, actually, a, yeah, a plastic pelvis against a virtual reality taken from the plastic pelvis that you could move it all around and you could walk up and down the iliac crest and it's wonderful, it's marvelous, it's so sexy. Against just straight multiple views photograph where you said to step through the views against front and back view. Earlier on in earlier studies, we found that multiple views adds nothing to simply front and back view. But in fact, poor learners are handicapped by seeing multiple views because it's too much, it's cognitive load. It's too much cognitive load. And what they do mentally, what they're doing, and here's where the theory comes in, what, what we discover is that what they're actually doing is if you present something at an oblique angle, what you try to do is mentally rotate it back to a standard angle. And so that requires more mental effort than just presenting it at the standard angle to begin with. But in memory, it's at a standard angle. And so that, in fact, if you're a poor student, you can't do that as well as a good student. And so you're disadvantaged by having something presented at a oblique angle. Again and again, we found that multiple views had no advantage and sometimes disadvantage over just front and back view. Then we discovered that, in fact, yeah, but however we played it out, whether it's, whether it's operator control or not, it was always coming out with the same thing. There were no different. There was no advantage to any of the fancier methods. Then we discovered that if we just handed them to a plastic pelvis, we got about a 50% increase. It was a 50% increase over all the other modalities. And again, there's multiple theories. Is that because you can touch it and hold it? Mm -hmm. That was one theory. So we did another condition where they couldn't touch it at all. They could, they, do, they could just look at it from various, but they couldn't touch it. What it turns out is that the, the real thing, the real object gives you a sense of the third dimension that you cannot simulate with virtual reality. It's just not as good. We then went on to do some real virtual reality stuff with state-of-the-art Bill Gates, Microsoft stuff, right. and nothing worked. Huh. Nothing worked. And this is where plain detective comes in. Nothing worked. It just, every time I looked at it, all of our prior theories were going down in flames. I thought, what the hell is going on? And then I, we had a meeting with the students at, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and at 1 o'clock I'm sitting in the family room on the sofa, Looking at this date and suddenly realized, oh my God, of course. When they entered the data, they entered it as they came through the door and then they randomly assigned them to one of the group, four groups after they came through the door. And I had assumed, oh, and, and, and I reordered, I resorted it against, you know, what group they're in. But I didn't realize that the sorting program in SPSS only sorted that variable, and that all the other variables were as they came through the door. And so that's plain detective. That's the kind of stuff that yeah. the data's got to be there. I'm missing something. And as soon as I resorted it, bang, there it was, the 50% increase with, with real reality against all the other modalities. And the virtual reality stuff, if anything, led, led nowhere. They gave no advantage whatsoever. All they did was give you headaches. Business. Mm -hmm. So was, that epitomizes the kind of, frankly, the intellectual, the, the rush you get from, from that stuff. As a sidebar, we know all the research showing about how studies don't replicate, and particularly in psychology, studies don't replicate. And what you don't know is they've also shown that in particularly in social psychology, which is, if you like, the, the psychology of the everyday, okay. um, 
one of the studies that was done as an example of, of social psychology is this psychologist in the Netherlands uh, would dress up his Confederates either in shoddy clothing or in nice clothing and, and park them on a bench at Utrecht train station. And then measure when people sat down beside them, how close they sat. And the theory was that if they're well-dressed, people would sit closer than if they're shot, shot dressed. And it's one of those simple things where you say, son of a gun, isn't that? And it's, it's, it's beautiful because, of course, you can publish it in Science and Nature because anybody can relate to that. Right. There's nothing mystical about it. You know? And so these guys, they, it's like Danny Kahneman and the Cardin Biases. He gets his stuff into Science and Nature because it's one of those, holy crap, really? Kind of studies. One of the trouble is, in this case, this guy whose name I will blank on actually lied about the data and had to list, retract 79 publications, where in each case he cooked the data. Um, but he was playing, he was deluding himself, but he was also buying into the weaknesses of the community, which is we as a community, when we see a finding which we expect, you know, so the antibiotic killed the bugs. Yeah, well, so do all the other antibiotics kill bugs. Big deal. And, and much of epidemiology is really boring as hell because it's at that level. We did a clinical trial and the drug gave you a 20% risk reduction over the placebo. Well, I guess so. Why, if it didn't, you wouldn't have spent all that money, right? Uh, that's boring. That's normal science. But the stuff that really turns scientists crank is the unexpected, mm -hmm. the novel, bizarre. Right. And the trouble is, and therein lies the danger. That's where a lot of the non-replication comes from, mm -hmm. is because taking common sense things like this guy did, uh, Utrecht train station, when they, when they tried to replicate that study, they discovered there were no benches in Utrecht train station where he said they were. So they knew he cooked the data. Mm -hmm. But that, that epitomizes how scientists can get trapped because we love the unexpected so much. Right. And therein lies potential fault. Mm -hmm. So to you, based on all your experiences thus far and right now, what, how do you define curiosity? What is curiosity for you? Oh, well, somebody said that curiosity comes to the prepared mind. You know, psychometricians have done stupid things like trying to develop curiosity measures. Like how many th uses can you think of for a brick? trouble is that, you know, Einstein had a lot of really good ideas around general relativity, mainly because, and very creative ideas. You know, in fact, there are four dimensions, not three times the fourth dimension, equivalent to the other three. That's the outcome of a curious mind. But he could do that really well in physics. He couldn't do it at all well in chemistry or in music. There's no question that, like everything else, problem solving, critical thinking, all that stuff, it really comes down to how much you know about that domain. So, yes, I have a, a predilection to being curious, but I have no illusions that that pays off really well in, in the cognitive psychology of clinical reasoning because I've been fooling around with it for 40 years. But does it pay off if I start to think about other domains? Nah. No. Economics? No, I don't think so. Now, some domains like cognitive biases, yeah, I spent a lot of time on that. I've made some kind of cute contributions too. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, look at, the, look at the adjective. I don't call it rigorous or methodologically sound. I call it cute or sexy or neat or cool. Or, when you think about the way scientists describe things, they use aesthetic terms to describe the things that they really enjoy. Mm -hmm. You don't talk about, oh, I really saw a rigorous study the other day. 
Nah, good scientists, rigorous is just taken for granted. What really excites them is when it's a, an interesting question, that's, and particularly one that turns out to be counterintuitive, as long as you're prepared to, to realize that that guy's running the risk when he does that. Mm -hmm. And then it's really that counterintuitive, then you really look at that for a second, because that's when people can really mess up because they get too driven by the thing they want to prove and forget about all the alternatives. Okay. So cool. So I'm going to move into a different direction. And I remember your story with uh, Rose at UBC. Yes. Yeah. And you told me over email the other day, why are you doing at seven in the morning? <laughs> you don't like early morning stuff. But yet no. golf seems to make you get up early. What is it about golf that makes you get up early? I really don't get up early. But Well, well, you, know, you can't survive, particularly in a faculty health sciences. You know, the running doctors always meet at 7 a.m. If it's education, they meet at 7 a.m. or 7 p.m., right? It's a curse. Why? Because they've got their clinics and they've got their patients and they've got to save lives and all that stuff, right? And I hated that. The first, the, honest to God, the first day of my retirement, I turned the alarm off. And basically, it comes on about once every two weeks now. And, and typically, when I do set it, I'm setting it for 9 a.m. because we don't normally wake up before 9 a.m. <laughs> and we like it that way. Okay. <laughs> Lately, I've had to play golf at 8.15 in the morning, and then it kills me. <laughs> But, you know, you, you do what you've got to do. But I'm not at my best anymore. So be it. Good morning, people. Is my, my wife and I go to bed at 12.30 or 1 most nights. So it doesn't take a lot of time to sleep six, like you. <laughs> you and I would never in a million years. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it about golf that you enjoy so much? I do like golf, but in your case, is it the physics mind that gets you or what? Well, again, that reflects right back on my childhood and my upbringing. As I told you, I was, I was born in 1944. I was a premature, by the way. I was four and a half pounds. I was very lucky to survive that event because in those days they, they couldn't keep the one kilogram kids alive. Mm -hmm. So I survived pretty well, pretty well okay. I wasn't blinded by breathing pure oxygen. But I was small, believe it or not. At one time I was actually small. And then when I started to advance in school, there's really good evidence about, exp about expertise in sports. Yeah. And All the top hockey players, basketball players, volleyball, you name it, were all born in January, February, March. Oh. No, I'm sorry, we're born late in the year, around April. Why? Because when you start school in September, they've got a nine-month advantage over the kids born in September. Oh. So when they're picking kids for the team in September, they're always picking the kids who were born earlier on, you know, in, in the spring. Right. Because they've had six months more of growth. Well, I wasn't six months behind everybody else because I was born in November, too. I was two years and six months behind everybody else. So I was always the last kid picked on the baseball team and the hockey team. Well, oh, not the hockey team. Hell, I don't even know how to skate. I was always the last pick, kid picked. And so I assumed that I had absolutely no physical prowess whatsoever. I, I think I played intercollegiate curling, which is not exactly an aggressive sport. But I sort of, and, and my wife, frankly, didn't deter me from that. She, she bought, bought into that. So along comes retirement. And about age 70, I started playing badminton and tennis and discovered that 
I wasn't great, but I wasn't as bad as I thought I should be. And then when I got to golf, first of all, it's a social thing. We have definite golf rules, which you don't keep score. You're not allowed to keep score. Uh, mm -hmm. There is always, you play 10 holes or 19 holes because you never, you always have the last hole with a beer. Mm -hmm. You don't play the hole, right? It's, it's the 10 holes. And uh, I discovered, first of all, most of the things you do when you're retired are, are social events because you're at home alone most of the time. Being retired is a bit like having permanent COVID. You, know? you don't go out much. But secondly, um, I got pretty decent at golf. And yesterday, I played golf at Saddle Beach, and the seventh hole was a very, very difficult hole, and I parted, which is just, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're done. Yeah, yeah. So, so the golf has been, it's, it's, a, it's an old man's sport, although there's a lot of young guys playing. I, mean, I can't hit it as hard as the young guys, of course. But I'm, I'm getting better at it every year, and I'm getting tremendous satisfaction, and it's social. I enjoy the It's not easy. It's, it's not an easy game. And it's taken years to get to the point where I am. It's, yeah. it's not an easy game at all. And you can continue to get better. And I'm going to ultimately plateau because I would never play more than once a week. I don't enjoy it that much. I don't take golf vacations. Not interested. Not interested in going with a bunch of guys to Florida for two weeks and playing golf three times. That's my idea. That and cruise shoes. Okay. So when Jeff is not thinking about research ideas or science, what is he doing? And you mentioned airplanes. Can you elaborate on that? On what other activities that you do these days? I still like to work with my hands a lot. Mm -hmm. When I got to being a young parent and all that stuff, the airplanes had to fall by the wayside because I that much time. But I, I substituted house building. And actually, the first thing I ever did we were as poor as churchmen. Oh. We, we bought this old house and it had a terrible lean-to kitchen on it. And one July, I knocked the kitchen off and built a whole new one from the, from the foundation to the shingles. Plumbing, wiring, plastering, the whole bit, all by myself in four weeks. Huh. I got tremendous satisfaction. Up at the cottage yesterday, I built a, a vegetable box. Okay. Tremendous satisfaction. And then, I'm really proud of the fact that I, I, can, I, can, I can use my hand to affect it. I can do just about anything. Well, I can do anything on house. There's things that I no longer, I choose not to do. But I can do anything on house if I want to. I've done it all at some point. Just that, you know, I don't, I don't wall around on roofs anymore doing shingles. It's dangerous and it's tough. Yeah. But I, I know how. And I can negotiate with that. So, In fact, a lot of the physics was really just a way to keep my hands exercised, too, because I definitely went into experimental physics, not theoretical. The theory is just too bloody difficult. Uh -huh. But the experimentalists, we could make stuff, too. Right. So I learned how to make printed circuit boards and how to do welding and machining and all that stuff. And I've always had good satisfaction. I'm all airplanes. It's just another area. Yeah. Okay, one of my last questions. You have been anywhere and everywhere in terms of fields of interest. If you were to create your idea, not idea, but let's say if you were to create now a path for you in your life, what would you create? What would you choose? To be? Um, maybe architecture. Oh, okay. 
because when I was an undergraduate, I was hanging around with people in the School of Architecture. Okay. And it looked like a nice way to combine the aesthetic with the engineering part. My wife is an artist, and so she's taught me aesthetics. And we live in a beautiful house, and we have a beautiful cottage, and it's all, it's all entirely her doing. She has a tremendous aesthetic sense. And, and I've learned to come to appreciate that. I've learned to come to appreciate art. Uh, and so architecture is unique. And first of all, every, no architect, well, architects do, but every building is different, which is an interesting macroeconomic issue. One of the troubles with house building is that they're all different. We're still using five, five millennium old technology like bricks. So there's got to be a more efficient way to build walls than one brick at a time. Uh -huh. Let's think about those people, right? Um, so, so architecture, however, has a uniqueness about it. Mm -hmm. The only thing that's missing from that is it doesn't satisfy the how the things work thing. It's, it's back in the engineering side. So I don't I, I ended up being really happy doing something. I, never took, I still haven't taken a real psychology course. Mm -hmm. I graduated a bunch of psychologists. You know some of them. But I actually haven't taken a psychology course. I took EdSight, which wasn't the same. That was how to teach better, not how does the mind work. Okay. And psychology was in the faculty of science on the other side of the campus. EdSight was in the faculty of education. And I was stuck in the wrong place. Okay. But I've, I've grown to really, really love psychology in part because unlike physics, you don't have to have an IQ of 300 to do it. It's accessible. Okay. It's accessible for somebody like me. Yeah, I'm right. I'd be foolish to try and convince him that I'm dumb, because I'm not. But I'm not a genius. And it was a niche that worked out nicely in terms of satisfying a lot of the things that, that have always been integrated. Like, how things work. A lot of psychology, on the other hand, goes too far so that they come up with some local theory about something or other, devise some materials that are uniquely suitable to that local theory, find in the fact and then proclaim that they've discovered some inner truth and forgetting that their theory probably is bounded by the materials they use. Mm. One of the really neat things about, there's two neat things about playing psychology in medical education. The first is that you can, you can convince people that it really is important, so it's easier to get money. Right. Well, you know, you can, you can down to this thing about, and this will ultimately save lives one day, and, and people will actually buy that stuff. Um, but the second is that you have to be honest about the materials you use. And you have to be honest about the theories you're testing and that they have to anchor somewhere in the reality. And of course, the reality being medicine. And so you can't get away with the kind of sloppiness that cognitive psychologists are guilty of more than they would admit in terms of devising materials that are totally bounded by the constraints that they haven't recognized. Mm -hmm. Medical education, at least, you don't teach medical students ECGs on, on hearts that have six chambers. Right. You've got to have honest materials. And so there is that satisfaction that, yeah, if push comes to shove, there is some practical application. And it makes it easier to publish in psychology journals because they're so happy to see something that has some way to want application. Right. Not that I really care whether it ever gets applied. But yes, I can certainly say, yeah, this is this derives from the real world. And by the way, um, I learned early on before qualitative research existed or before certainly before we were aware of it, that any good quantitative researcher begins the study with qualitative research. 
you sit down and you talk to people about how this works and how they approach it. It's just that you don't publish that. You then take the insight you've learned and then turn it into something experimental. And that you probably. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, back in 1970-something, Robert, when I was this young research assistant with a full head of hair, I was actually doing qualitative research. I just didn't know it. Mm -hmm. A lot of that stuff that we look at, yeah, we turned it into numbers eventually, but a lot of it was just, we had written transcripts. We were transcribing stuff long before anybody else. It's just we didn't have sophisticated methods to that to analyze. So we counted. But still, that's part of the game. And and the neat part is that it has some real world, it's bounded in the real world, but it's still useful for doing abstract theories. And that's just, that's an intersection that I find really satisfying. Okay. So, would I rather be an architect or a psychologist? That's a tough one. You know, <laughs> not sure I have a chance to try architecture anyway. Maybe both. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Jeff. That's been, this has been really enjoyable to listen to your story. I appreciate you sharing it with us. Okay, it was great fun. Thanks, sir. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I will see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Saira Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.